this lesson, we are going to look at causation, damage, and remoteness. Now, once a duty of care has been established and we find out that it has been breached by the defendant, we must look at whether the action that was done by the defendant caused the actual harm. Now, while this might seem simple at first when you go into case law and when you go into the theory of it, you'll, you'll understand that it's, it's not so simple. For instance, uh, when there are multiple people involved or when uh, the damage is not as clear-cut. So we'll look at each of these in turn. Now, the original test for causation was the same as it was seen in criminal law, as in the sine qua non or but-for test, where the defendant must have done the sole act which caused the damage, as seen in Barrett and Chelsea Medical Management. Now, as I said earlier, it's not as clear-cut. So what happened was, when we employ this particular test, the but-for test in causation, it became quite lenient in relation to the defendant. So if there were some other intervening events, there might be the issue of imposing liability. So since this became quite uh, fastidious and quite difficult, court needed to find out a mechanism by which multiple acts of negligence, multiple torts rather, can be considered. And in this regard, in McGee and National Coal Board, the court recognized that in the event of multiple acts having been committed by different people, the one most prevalent or the one that materially increased the harm was to be held liable. Now, something that goes in line with this as well is seen in Hodson and East Berkshire Health Authority where the quotient of probability is brought in. Another area that we had to look at when we think about causation is when more than one person is involved, when there are joint and several liability that we must consider, multiple tort feasors. In that regard, we have to consider not only the one that either materially increased, as in McGee and National Coal Board, or the greater chance, as in 51% of probability, as in Hodson and East Berkshire Health Authority, but also liability of non-materially increasing tort feasors, such as in Fairchild and Glenhaven. All of these cases are available in your summary. Have a look at them, then you'll get a better understanding. Once we look at causation, much like anything else in law, we must consider the definition of damages itself. And by damages, I don't mean the compensation. By damages, I mean the actual damage that uh, the claimant is, in fact, claiming for. Now, there are certain considerations that we must think about when we, when we think of damage because over the years, so many cases have come up and so many situations that court has had to deal with in which damages have been purported by claimants. Some have been granted, some have not. For instance, in McFarlane and Tayside, a case that we looked at earlier, a normal birth of a child was considered a blessing and not a damage. However, in Parkinson and Seacroft University, we see that if a child was born with a disability, then there may be compensation provided in order to facilitate benefits in relation to medical care that the child might need. But all of this is on a case-by-case -case basis. You need to note down the fact that once we considered causation earlier, where we thought of the but-for, material increase, probability, even multiple tort feasors, all of these are mechanisms by which court finds a way to grant relief for the claimant. So in line with causation, it's there to benefit the claimant, whereas the definition of damage itself 
is provided in order to give some redress to the defendant where there are frivolous charges being brought by claimants. So court tries to, once you look at it quite deeply, court tries to strike a balance, so to speak, in causation and damage in relation to both defendant and claimant. It is wise to note down this purely because in an examination situation, you might be required to consider one aspect in line with the claimant and another in relation to the defendant. And this is a good point of argument to consider the causation aspect of uh, a particular case or a particular scenario as provided and the damage aspect of it. The final element in rounding out what uh, the tort of negligence is or whether it has been committed is remoteness. Now there are a string of cases that need to be considered and I won't go into detail here because they are available in the case summaries and I urge you to look at them and study them. But suffice to say, where it all starts is in the old law, as in, in Re Polemis, where it states that unless the act was by a complete third party, nothing is too remote. So if the claimant is claiming damages or compensation in relation to a defendant's act, however the act itself or what occurred was due to a third party, then it might be considered too remote. Otherwise, if the defendant was involved in some way, shape or form, regardless of a third party, Ray Polemus states that there is no remoteness, the defendant is liable. In Scott and Shepard, the old law, which is in Ray Polemus, was sort of shifted to state that as long as the third party act was foreseeable, the defendant is liable. However, this was found to be quite unfair. Much like the quotient of damage which was brought in by court, uh, a very strict definition of damage in order to um, stop frivolous claims, as I said earlier. So the new view is if damage could occur and it's reasonably foreseeable, then the defendant might be liable. Wagon Mount 2 went ahead and extended uh, the definition and the requirements in Wagon Mount number 1, where it stated that damage must be foreseeable but not chances of it occurring. Have a look at all the cases as well as the summaries because it's very helpful to have an in-depth understanding of the case law, of the story, of the facts as well as the ratio. Next, we will have a look at defenses before we move on from negligence. <laughs> 